When I went to seminary, um, where I went, you would jump right in, and the first thing you do is summer intensive Greek. Hours upon hours of flashcards and memorization and declension exercises. And I don't think I'd ever put as much just pure effort into my school as I did then. You can probably ask Allison. It was a lot of fun around our house for that summer. Why do we start like that? Especially since most of us hadn't been in school for a little while. For me, I'd been out for four years. Why not ease our way into it? Something a little simpler, transition in. Because Greek's a prerequisite for all your New Testament classes. If you haven't taken it, you can't take those. And you need to start those if you want to finish on time. That's how it goes. Even if you don't particularly care to study the languages, you still have to do it. Otherwise, you can't get done. So many of us have experienced this, prereqs, whether in college or even high school. I remember shop class, like you want advanced shop because the projects are way cooler, but they won't let you take it if you haven't taken the beginner one. Something about safety, I don't know, stuff like that. But a lot of things in life happen like that. Sequence, prereqs for things. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to put these things in front of the gospel, too. We put prerequisites in front of it. And some of you have probably experienced this. You didn't or maybe, maybe even still don't feel all that welcome, even here this morning, because of X, Y, Z, because you don't look a certain way, because you don't know all the lingo that we use, because we keep talking about the Bible and act like you should know it backwards to forwards, because you express yourself in a little bit different way. Even as Tana mentioned, um, Salvation Army starts because people don't feel welcome in a church. Sad is that. But it's a reality oftentimes. I think we do this with ourselves too. We put on our Sunday best, or you get me in a sweater instead of my Monday to Friday flannel, right? We act like it's an aberration that our kids aren't well behaved. I don't know what's going on this morning. Like that's not everyday life, right? We keep ourselves at arm's length. We hide away our flaws and faults. We're doing great. We have to act like we're doing better than we are. All the meanwhile thinking, I need to do better. I need to be doing better in my devotional life. I don't want to talk to this person because I didn't show up to that church function. Like these things are what dictate our relationship with God. Like we're second tier Christians if we're not doing it all right. Maybe it's not explicit, but it can easily come across. You need to do this. You need to be like this before you can be accepted, before you can belong, that there are prerequisites to it. Well, this happened right at the beginning of the church, too, as the gospel is spreading outside the Jewish community. And we're going to see in our passage this morning how we should handle and think about this. So let's hear God's word in Acts 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just, on, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing on in the book of Acts this morning. Um, and if you were here last week, as I read that passage, you might have thought, is he preaching the same passage that Dan did last week? Was Dan's sermon really that bad that he had to do it again? No, it's not the same passage, though much of the content is the same. This morning we're looking at this last scene, if you look at storyline, the falling action, if you will, of this story of Cornelius and the Gentiles of the gospel going to them, those who aren't Jews. Or last week, Dan was dealing with it happening in real time um, with the gospel going to the Gentiles, and now we're seeing the after effects of that, what it looks like and how it affects the church. And we're seeing conflict that comes as a result of that. And so while there are a few new things that are said, the bulk of it's almost repeated, almost word for word. And we might think it's boring to read. I do that sometimes in my Bible reading if it's just repeating, tune out. But the Bible doesn't waste words. They're all there for a purpose. So when something's repeated, we should actually be doing the opposite. Not saying, this is boring, but saying, God, what are you trying to communicate? The repetition is for emphasis. And what we're going to see this morning is that if we put anything at all in the way of the gospel of God's grace, if we put anything at all as a prerequisite of it going to all people, we are standing in God's way. That's the big idea this morning. If we put anything at all in the way of the gospel going to all people, then we are standing in God's way. And we're going to see it as we look at this conflict between a group of people in the church and Peter. And we're going to see this point made as we kind of consider the storyline, as we look at their reproof and, and his reasoning, and then their response as the story unfolds. So let's look first at their reproof. It's in verses 1 to 3. So uh, the Gentiles have come to faith, and this news spreads through the church in Judea there. So all the Christians, from the apostles down to the brothers and sisters, they hear that this has happened, that the Gentiles, the nations, those outside of the Jewish community have received the word of God. It seems like most of them are good with that. But then when Peter comes down to Jerusalem, there's a certain group that comes up to him called the uh, circumcision party here. It's a group in the church who were, essentially thought you had to become Jewish in order to become Christian that you had to be circumcised, that you had to follow the dietary food laws. And this hasn't really been an issue before because this is just the first instance of it really going out among the Gentiles. So they were already all alike in this sense. 
all the Christians were already Jews. They already were circumcised. They already obeyed the food laws. But now this bubbles up. This difference that's happening bubbles up in this reproof. And he says, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. And as we see throughout the New Testament, this issue doesn't go away. It's the reason for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that's coming up. And it's all over in Paul's letters, this issue of how do we deal with these people that are different. So they're taking something from their own history, from their own culture and nation, and making it a prerequisite to be a Christian, to be fully accepted into the Christian community. So let's look at Paul's reasoning here. He begins in verse 4 where he explains it to them in order. And he kind of goes in, in two stages. I think Peter, like us sometimes, isn't super quick on the uptake. Um, but as God is patient with us, so he is with Peter. And the stages we'll see is that first, God takes what is unclean and makes it clean. And then he makes no distinction between them. He says we're actually all in the same boat. Same need, same Savior. So let's look at that first step. In verses 5 to 10, this is the vision. It comes down, this uh, tarp, this sheet, with all these unclean animals on it. And there's the command to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, by no means, Lord, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. So this is a big deal for Jews. This goes against the law of Moses, against God's law for the people of Israel, God's law that is good and perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's good for them. Peter's kept it his whole life, even when Jesus was with him. So this is a big deal for this change to be happening. The voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times to reinforce the truth of it, to convince a hesitant Peter that it's true. That the food laws that have governed God's people for centuries no longer apply. It's a huge shift. And Peter understands this not to apply only to food, but to people as well. Last week we saw in verse 28, he says, God has shown me that, what, that I should not call any person common or unclean. So it's hard to overestimate like, how big of a shift this is for the Jewish people in a Jew's thinking. Throughout the Old Testament, Jews, Gentiles could come in, they could join God's people, But this shatters the barrier between these two differences, between these two groups as ethnic entities in covenant with God. That barrier is just obliterated. As Paul will say later, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, for you are all one in Christ. It's a fundamental shift in their thinking of who they are and how they relate to God. So prior to this, there was this line that couldn't be crossed, this line between clean and unclean. There were untouchables, and not like in the mobster type of way where you like, couldn't attack them, but in the you don't want to touch them kind of way because they'll pollute you. They could spread their uncleanness to you. And we saw this beginning to be broken down in Jesus. You see in uh, Matthew 8, he heals the leper. Lepers were unclean. They were contagious. You couldn't touch them or you would become unclean as well. But Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. And the opposite of what you expect happens. Instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the leper is made clean. 
You see the shift starting to happen through the power of Christ. And in this vision, Peter sees that God has done this across the board now, that God has made all foods and all people clean. And what God has made clean, Peter cannot call common. Maybe you can think of it like something that's set aside for one maybe gross purpose that you uh, don't use it for others. So in my house, uh, when I was growing up, we had a couple puke buckets. And uh, I don't recall them ever being used for anything else. They were just there. You knew where they were in the basement. And even now at our house, if Lucy goes down with me, there's a bucket. And every time she passes, she says, I threw up in that. I'm like, yes, you did. But surely, you wouldn't ever want to say, eat out of it, right? It's gross. had vomit in it. It's unclean forever. Well, Allison and I were talking about it, and apparently people in the upper Midwest don't necessarily see it the same way. Um, For some of you, your puke bucket is your popcorn bucket. That's what I've learned. Yeah. Once it's been cleaned, you're good eating out of it. In fact, you think of it as your popcorn bucket, not your puke bucket, right? And now if anyone here hosts a movie night, you're going to be hesitant before you accept some popcorn. But maybe you have actually a more biblical view of things having been made clean than some of us who might draw a harder line. It's been sanitized. Right? It actually is fine. I know that in my head, too. And if we can believe that about a popcorn bucket, why do we have a hard, such a hard time doing it with people? Now, we're not Jews struggling with adherence to circumcision and food laws. And we don't use the ceremonial language of clean and unclean. Right? But if we're honest, we draw some of these same lines. There are some who are untouchables for us. We probably know in theory we would confess that no one is beyond God's reach. But in our minds and hearts, we write people off this way. There are people that we don't want to pray for good to happen to them. There are people that we would be hesitant to invite across the threshold of our front door. Right? There are people that we don't want to be around, that we think they might rub off on us. If we're honest, we do those same, same things. We see them as unclean says here, what God has made clean, do not call common. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking of yourself. That you're polluted. That you're unclean. Because of sin in your life, either that you've committed or that's been committed against you. That you can't really be made clean. You think that you're beyond God's reach. That you're fundamentally broken and always will be. I'm sorry for what you've been through. But I want you to hear me. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace. You probably don't believe me still. You've been telling yourself this or others have been telling you this for years. But I mean this. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Maybe you're like Peter. 
and need to hear it a third time to let it actually sink in. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace. What God has made clean, do not call common. Even yourself. A barrier has been broken in Christ. That's the first step we see in Peter's reasoning. God shattering this barrier between unclean and clean. The next step is that he makes no distinction. If you look with me at verses 11 and 12. Now, not only are these Gentiles not unclean, but the Spirit, these guys come, and the Spirit tells them to go with them, making no distinction. So he takes six other brothers with him, and they enter the man's house, which is something that would not have happened before. So if what Peter understood before is that Gentiles are now clean, they won't pollute you, now the Spirit is telling Peter that there's no distinction between them, that they're not beneath him even if they're not like him. That's the first thing that Peter said when he started preaching at the end of chapter 10. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter that we're different there. Not all dissimilar from what James tells us, that we shouldn't show partiality and gives an example of rich and poor. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter your age, your race, your socioeconomic status, your political affiliation, whatever. We're not to show partiality because God does not show partiality. But we do naturally form these cliques, don't we? We have such a tendency to just attract and close off and then separate ourselves from others. It only takes about... Ten minutes in the movie Mean Girls for the list of different groups to be listed. The freshmen, the JV jocks, the burnouts, some others I'm not going to mention. Then the greatest people you'll ever meet. And the worst, the plastics. That's how we judge, isn't it? Label everyone. Obviously my group is the best, greatest people you'll ever meet then we can dehumanize others, the worst. I'm not saying it's wrong to have close friends with similar interests, but we need to be careful that we're not looking down on others that aren't like us or elevating ourselves, that we're not showing preference to one type of person over another. This goes for those outside the church. Do we only talk to people we share common interests with? Who are we willing to engage? Is there someone that we avoid? We step away from if we see him on the street. Do we make these distinctions and adjust our willingness to engage, to talk? We even have a tendency to do this inside the church. It's easy to form our cliques around our preferences, around our personalities, or just even the age and stage of life that we're in. So easy to fall into these cliques of, whether it's working moms, stay-at-home moms, where you send your school, what type of job you're working, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're artistic or athletic. I don't think you can be both. 
And it's easy for these distinctions which, to, to kind of bubble up and cause division. I'm doing it the right way. Why aren't they doing it like me? They don't understand. They just don't get it. But unless something is clearly sin, which none of the things I just listed are, then we need to be careful on how we look at one another. We need to judge one another with charity. Give people the benefit of the doubt. View yourself with humility. Recognize that you're just trying to be faithful where you are too. And so are they. That we're on the same team, that we're part of the same body. We're united to the same Christ by the same Spirit. With the same goal to the glory of God. And we need to see that these distinctions are largely superficial. Often the result of our own experience. These high school movies keep popping up. I'm going to use another one. 80s classic, The Breakfast Club. When you force a brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse, that's their descriptions, to spend time together, and they get to know one another, they actually learn that they actually share a lot of the same struggles and concerns and cares. That they have the fallen human experience with both its dignity and its depravity. They have that in common. And when they recognize that, they can actually care for one another. They can actually have compassion on one another. They can actually support one another. So if time and detention actually getting to know each other, can begin to break down these distinctions. How much more should the church? Because the truth is that at rock bottom, we're all in the same place. It's a different Greek word, translated the same in English, because it kind of has a lot of the same meaning, but it's what Paul says in Romans 3, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're all the same at rock bottom. It's the same message here in verses 13 to 17. It says, Peter will declare a message by which they will be saved. Not activity, not obedience, not adherence to the law. He will declare a message by which they will be saved. And it's the exact same way Peter and the other Jews were saved. Not by adherence to the law. What does it say? When we believed. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's confirmed to both groups in the same way. The same spirit is sent in the same way. No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. No matter how different you are than the person sitting next to you. You are in the same boat. You need Jesus to save you. That's the message Peter delivered by which they would be saved. He said, there's good news of peace through Christ who was hung on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. He has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Will you believe in him this morning? It's 
Peter's reasoning. Not only has God torn down the barrier of nationality and declared all people and all foods clean, he's shown that there's no distinction, that we're all saved in the exact same way, by grace, through faith in Christ. And all who are saved are given his spirit just the same. This brings us to the response. First Peter's and then those of the circumcision party. Peter says, it's God who has done all of this. That's the theme running through this whole thing. It's God has done this. God has done this. God has done this. And if God has done this, who am I to stand in God's way? That's what I would be doing if I wouldn't associate with them. That's what I would be doing if I didn't eat with them. If I wouldn't have full fellowship with them. If I said they had to be circumcised or had to obey the food laws, then I would be putting something ahead of Jesus Christ. Saying what Jesus did isn't enough. You have to do something too. I would be standing in God's way. And the same is true for us. If we put anything at all in the way of God's, the gospel of God's grace going to all people, then we are standing in God's way. I'm not saying this means everything goes or sin doesn't matter. It says they were granted repentance that leads to life at the end, right? Things do matter. Sin matters. Or Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Right? But we can't tell people that they need to quit sinning before they can come to Jesus. There's nothing you have to do before you can come to Jesus. Turn to him. Believe in him. And then we definitely can't force our own preferences or culturally conditioned ideas upon others and call that Christianity and faithfulness. That's not just putting the cart before the horse, but it's just putting something in the road to block it all together. Those who criticized Peter fell silent. They heard what God has done and they glorify him. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. May we have such humility, as quick as we are to criticize, to actually listen. And as we engage with others, we'll hear. As we look at other Christians whose liturgy and practice might have slightly different emphases, may we rejoice in the ever-broadening kingdom, going to all people in all places, turning them to Jesus. Not to have them look like us, but to have both us and them look more like Christ. We have a tendency to put things in the way of the gospel, to want to conform others into our image, instead of knowing and proclaiming the true free grace of Christ. It doesn't destroy our differences, but sanctifies them as we live lives of repentance, of continual turning to God. This isn't always easy. We feel like we get it, right? And then we fall off course so quickly without even realizing it. Back into legalism or licentiousness. Back into viewing our relation to God as being connected to the law our obedience, either in obeying it or in utterly rejecting it. Instead of standing firm in the ever-flowing stream of God's grace, 
And Peter does it too. Paul rebukes him in Galatians 2 for standing in God's way in the exact same way that he's condemning here. He withdraws from the Gentiles. He won't eat with them. He won't fully associate with them. What he says here is standing in God's way. He does later the exact thing. Let Peter's failure be an encouragement to you. That as you're thinking about this and the ways we have a tendency to do this, to put things in the way of the gospel, that the solution for your failure is the same. To turn again to Jesus, to believe in him afresh as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. It's what all of us continually need. And the truth is there's nothing in the way of it.